As you turn in your Bibles to Philemon, I want to remind you, as we have been studying this wonderful little letter, that although Paul's vocabulary in this book never mentions forgiveness, it surely is the theme of his words here. True forgiveness is really at the heart of what Paul is driving toward when he asks Philemon to receive Onesimus back from being a runaway slave. And as we have delved into the matter of what forgiveness is all about, the Lord has convicted us, hasn't he, about our need to understand forgiveness and then to grant it to others. One of the wonderful commentaries on the book of Philemon is by David Garland, and he gives us some wise words about this matter of forgiveness. He says, persons should not expect to receive from God what they are not prepared to bestow on others. A forgiving spirit is the outstretched hand by which we grasp God's forgiveness. When we close that hand tightly into a fist, we give nothing, but also can receive nothing. And that's really the heart of what we've been talking about as we've defined forgiveness. Forgiveness comes first from God to us, and because of that knowledge and because of that wonderful mercy of forgiveness that we receive from God, we are then able to grant that wonderful forgiveness to others. Now, in commenting on Paul's appeal for Philemon to forgive and then comparing that kind of forgiveness to our own day, Garland goes on to say, the issue that Paul deals with is not who is or is not most guilty, but how to restore broken relationships. Before there can be any restoration, both must repent and forgive the other for real and perceived wrongs. The problem is that forgiveness in our age has become too sentimental and trivialized. True forgiveness does not excuse the sin. It also does not forget that anything ever happened. The demons of remembrance may be kept at bay during our waking hours, but they often run riot just before we fall asleep or in our dreams. The sin keeps being replayed in our memory, and the anger burrows ever more deeply into our psyche. We may think we have buried the hatchet, but we have left the handle sticking far enough out of the ground that we can reach for it when the next offense occurs. How can we as Christians absorb evil without passing it on to others or allowing it to fester in our own souls? If forgiveness is to happen, we must face the sin and the anger it causes. Well, that is precisely what we must do in order to deal with forgiveness and our lack of it. And it is precisely this issue that the Apostle Paul now turns the situation between Onesimus and Philemon. You remember that we have been studying verses 8 to 25 in Philemon, and we talked in verses 8 to 10 two Sundays ago about the appeal to forgive. We said that even though Paul was an apostle, even though he had the right to command and to demand that Philemon forgive his runaway slave Onesimus, who is coming back to seek that forgiveness, Rather than demanding it, he says, I appeal for love's sake. He appeals for Philemon to forgive. And that's the way we all ought to all respond when we seek 
others' forgiveness and ask them to forgive others. We should appeal. And then last Sunday, in verses 11 and 12, we saw what we called the process to forgive. The process to forgive. We said that process is a transaction. That there are conditions that a person must come and seek our forgiveness. They must repent. They must believe that God is the one who forgives sin and that they come to us in repentance and contrition and brokenness and we stand ready then to forgive them at a moment's notice because we remember immediately how much we have been forgiven. There is a process. This morning we want to be occupied in our verses that we're covering, verses 13 to 16, and we want to call it the reason to forgive. The reason to forgive. You follow along as I read verses 13 to 16. Paul mentions Onesimus here, and he says, It is he whom I wished to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Now in these four verses, the Apostle Paul gives us three reasons to forgive others. Three key reasons why we should be ready to forgive others at a moment's notice. Let's look at the first one. The first one is contained for us right there in verse 13, and we could characterize it this way. The first reason to forgive is that only when forgiveness has been granted can full and unhindered ministry occur in your life. I'll say it again. The first reason to forgive anyone is that when that forgiveness has been granted, you can have a full and unhindered hindered ministry in your life. Paul admits that he wants to keep Onesimus. He wants to keep him to himself. He says in verse 13, whom I wished to keep with me. The implication is, is that Paul has tremendous needs, probably physical mostly, probably the opportunity also for Paul to dispatch Onesimus on various things that Paul wants to communicate to the churches. Nevertheless, he wants Onesimus by his side. He had obviously proven himself to be a capable minister, and Paul wanted to keep him around. And Paul also knew, based on the way he wrote this verse, that if Philemon himself were in Rome, he would himself be assisting Paul in whatever Paul would need from him. But since he can't be there, he would surely want Onesimus to be there to minister even on Philemon's behalf toward Paul. He might be saying it this way in verse 13, Indeed, I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me. Paul has such a confidence in Philemon. He's spoken about his love in verse 5. He's spoken about his faith in verse 5 and his love and his heart in verse 7. And so because of that confidence in Philemon, 
He wants him to know, Philemon, I believe, I have confidence that if you were right here in Rome with me and not in Colossae, you'd be ministering to my needs just like Onesimus has been doing. You'd be here right with me. I'd have a tremendous fellow and brother in the Lord if you were right here with me. But since you're not able to be here, I want you to know that there has been someone who has been a long lost runaway of yours, Onesimus, and he's come to Christ. And he's repented of his sins. And I've been discipling him in the faith. And now Onesimus needs to come and make things right with you. And I'm sending him back, he says in verse 12. That is, sending my very heart. Now, I want to keep him with me. But I'm willing to give up my own needs being met so that first things come first. That he would come to you and seek your forgiveness. I'm sure in some small way, Paul would be... uh, giving a little impetus to Philemon. Listen, if I'm willing to give up my own needs to have Onesimus with me, you should be willing to give up some of your needs, some of your desires, maybe for retribution, so that when Onesimus comes and he's ready to minister to your needs, you would allow him to do so and you would forgive him at once. And once the process of forgiveness has been taken to task, once the process of forgiveness has been met, once those conditions have all been worked out, then the first principle is here. So that on behalf, on your behalf, he says, he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. You see, once forgiveness has been sought and granted, then you can minister in a full and unhindered way. Paul knew, he knew, that Onesimus was not going to be all that he could otherwise be for Christ unless he went back and made it right with Philemon. You see, Philemon, knowing that his slave was somewhere in the world, probably still alive, had no idea that he'd come to Christ. And when Paul sends this letter through Tychicus, he ensures the fact that Philemon knows that Onesimus has come to Christ, but there's been no reconciliation. There's been no reconciliation. Paul knows God's forgiveness. He knows exactly what needs to happen. And he says, even though I have my own needs, I'm going to send him right back to you so that he might seek your forgiveness and the reconciliation can take place and full and unhindered and complete ministry can take place with this man. His ministry is not complete unless that reconciliation can take place. And boy, if that isn't applicable to us today in the church. We cannot, we cannot have a full and complete and burgeoning and effective ministry if we have unreconciled relationships with one another. It could be one, it could be several, it could be many. And for every one of those relationships that we know is not reconciled, where forgiveness has not been sought and granted, our ministry effectiveness goes down and down and down and down. The Lord knows that we need to make it right with each other, whatever it is. And wouldn't it be a wonderful thing? Wouldn't it be a a tremendous thing that at the Bible Church of Little Rock, every relationship was completely and totally reconciled? Everybody who needed to seek forgiveness had in fact sought forgiveness. And everyone who needed to grant forgiveness had in fact granted forgiveness. Well, what, what would our ministry be like? What would it be like if every wife was completely right with her husband in the fellowship. Every parent 
was right with their children. Every believer was right with every other believer in the church. Everything would be forgiven and settled. Well, what kind of ministry could occur in this fellowship? Well, wouldn't it be grand? It would be like heaven on earth. It would be that no one had an agenda. No one was harboring any bitterness. No one had any anger against another person. You say, well, I've, I've done that. I've gone to everyone that I know, and some who I have asked for forgiveness have chosen not to forgive me. Well, if that's your case, you can minister in a full and unhindered way. That's why Romans 12 says, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. If you've worked hard, and if you've done everything you could to seek forgiveness, you can worship the Lord, you can serve the Lord, and you can minister in an unhindered way. But it could also be that there are those in the fellowship who, for those who have come to seek your forgiveness, you have not granted them that forgiveness. Oh, you may have said the words, but you've not really granted them forgiveness. You're still holding bitterness and anger in your heart. Oh, if you could just give that up. If you could just understand what God has done for you in Christ and then transfer that forgiving heart from the heart of God to your own heart so that you might forgive others. In 1987, Michael Carlucci shot Scott Everett to death. Carlucci pleaded guilty to second-degree manslaughter and was sentenced to 10 years in the state penitentiary. Scott's father, Pastor Walter Everett, in spite of his own pain, wrote a letter to Carlucci and eventually visited him. Carlucci told them that after receiving Everett's first letter, he knelt in his prison cell and asked God for forgiveness. In prison, after an hour-long discussion, the two men stood, shook hands, embraced and cried. Pastor Everett said, Christians won't be able to understand why Jesus came and what Jesus is all about unless we forgive. See, this is the power of Christian love. After serving his time, Michael Carlucci decided to wed. Pastor Walter Everett performed the wedding ceremony for his son's killer. Pastor Everett demonstrates that there is power in hoping for God's redeeming love to be glorified on the earth. This love can be so great, so lovely, so overwhelming that it empowers us to forgive those who've hurt us and love our enemies and do good to them. Pastor Everett's love reduced his son's killer to tears of repentance and faith in Christ. And he proved the axiom from James 2.13, mercy triumphs over judgment. Can you imagine how that church conducted that particular wedding ceremony? To have the pastor's son who had been murdered by the very man who was being married that day. Can you imagine the love in Pastor Everett's heart because he knew that he had been so freed in his soul to forgive the killer of his own son. He was free. He had full and unhindered ministry capability. You say, how is that possible? Because he'd been forgiven. He'd been forgiven the great debt that he owed. And now he was ready to minister fully and completely because he wasn't harboring any bitterness. John MacArthur in his book on forgiveness says, Philemon had a duty to the entire church at Colossae to forgive Onesimus. Had he refused to forgive the newest member of that fellowship, the entire congregation would have suffered. The unity of the, of the crowd would have been broken and their testimony to 
to the unbelieving community would have been hurt. You see, when someone sins against you, and when they come and seek your forgiveness and you say no, it's not just an issue between the two of you, it's an issue between the two of you and the fellowship and God. Others might not know about it, but if you're not ministering in a full and complete and unhindered way to others, even though they might not know about it, God knows. And He knows the reason why you're not being ministering in a full and complete way. It's because we're harboring bitterness in our hearts. You see, too much is given. Much is required. And we've been forgiven everything. It requires us to minister in a full and unhindered way. That's why Paul says in Colossians 3, And so, as those who have been chosen of God, put on a heart of kindness, compassion, humility, gentleness, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. And put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Oh, I long for the days that the Bible Church of Little Rock would have no issues. No issues. And as soon as those issues would rear their ugly head, there would be an immediate seeking of forgiveness, an immediate granting, so that we'd have no loss between us. Full and complete ministry. Well, that's the first reason to forgive. The second reason. The second reason to forgive is to show others that your love and forgiveness is from a pure heart and not coerced. That your love and your forgiveness of others is from a pure heart and is not coerced. Look at verse 14. He says, I want to keep him with me so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel, but without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. Paul is telling Philemon that he would do nothing without Philemon's consent. I don't want to presume upon you for anything until this matter is cleared up. You see, in Paul's world, forgiveness, especially in the matter of runaway slaves, was not the norm. You see, if Onesimus were caught by the authorities. Instead of being forgiven, he would have been returned to his master and likely killed. That was the law. For anybody who ran away, the judgment or sentence by that master could have been death with no retribution whatsoever. The master was the king of that household. And if he said, you wicked runaway slave, not only do I not forgive you, but you are worthy of death. Or if it were short of death, it certainly would have been a beating. They even, at times because of this sinfulness of, of slavery and the attitudes toward it, they could have at times even killed the runaway slave's family. Because if the slave would have been returned after having been caught, they might fear that after that runaway slave had been beaten, that his family would rise up and try to kill the master. And there were some masters who were killed in this rioting process. And so they sometimes would even kill all of the family all of the related relatives, because they would fear that this runaway slave and the love for him might incite in others a desire to kill the master. And so Paul is not, not completely sure. He believes Philemon to be a man of love and great faith, but he wants to make sure. And so he says, I don't want to presume upon you for anything. He might even this runaway slave be returned, as so many of them were. And sometimes they would even put an iron collar 
around the neck of a runaway slave with the master's address and maybe with a a word, an inscription that would say, Catch me, for I have fled my master. And if he were to run away again, surely he would be killed. But within the Christian community, no such action could be given. Instead, forgiveness, love, charity, but not under compulsion, because of a heart, because of an attitude of gratitude that says, Lord, I've been forgiven so much. How could I not forgive my runaway slave? How could I, how could I not grant that to him? You've forgiven me of a $10 trillion debt. How could I not forgive this runaway slave of the small debt that he owes to me? You see, there's a lot in the Bible about not doing things under compulsion, but doing, th- doing things as a result of love. That's why Peter said in 1 Peter 5.2 to the shepherds, the elders, shepherd the flock of God, not under compulsion, but do it voluntarily. Do it through love. Peter would have been reminded immediately of the Lord's words, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, love them. Do you love me, Peter? Love the sheep the way you say you love me. And Paul says to Philemon, if you love me, Philemon, Love Onesimus the way you love me, not under compulsion. You know, we want to be loved that way. We always say about the second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, that if we would want to see others love and be loved, we would want to love and be loved in the way that most fits our desires, that that most fits the way we want to be loved. And so we want to extend that love to others. But isn't it so true that we want to be loved in such a magnanimous way and yet we don't want to love others in that way? We want to exact our vengeance. We want to take our pound of flesh. But when it comes to our sins against others, we want them to be meek and mild toward us. It's a part of our sinfulness, really. John MacArthur said again, forgiveness is not a feeling. Those who insist on being driven by passion will find forgiveness very hard indeed because forgiveness often involves a deliberate choice that runs contrary to our feelings. Bitter emotions tell us to dwell on the offense. In contrast, forgiveness is a voluntary, rational decision to set the offense aside and desire only the best for the offender. But I cannot do that, someone says. I try to set it aside, but everywhere I go, something reminds me And I find myself thinking about it and getting upset all over again. Such things are temptations to sin. Brooding over an offense is no less a sin than lust or covetousness or any other heart sin. A willful choice must be made to turn away from that kind of thinking. Instead, we must deliberately cover the offense and refuse to succumb to angry and vengeful thinking whether we feel like it or not. Those who forgive, even when it's hard, invariably find that the proper emotions will follow. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you, Luke 6. Those are all willful, deliberate, rational acts, not emotional reflexes. Obey Christ's commands to do such things, and your anger will eventually give way to meekness. Frustration will be overcome by peace, and anxiety will succumb to calm. See, forgiveness results in the lifting of many burdens. 
To grant someone forgiveness when he or she repents is to lift the burden of guilt from that person. And to forgive liberates the forgiver to enjoy the even greater mercies given in return by a generous Heavenly Father who promises to pour into our laps a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. The first reason to forgive is so that we might have full and unhindered ministry among us. The second is so that we might love and forgive others with a pure heart, not under compulsion, not under manipulation. And thirdly, the third reason to forgive is so that we might rejoice in the unfolding of God's providence. That we might rejoice in the unfolding of God's providence. Look at verse 15. Paul says, for perhaps he, Onesimus, was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. I love this word separated here. It's the word charizo. It's Normally, the word that is used in our New Testament for the word divorce. And Paul is using it more generically here, and he says, perhaps for this reason, Onesimus was separated from you, and the implication is separated you from you by God. This is what Bible interpreters call the divine passive. It's a passive tense in this verb. And what it means is that Paul is suggesting that perhaps... The very reason why God allowed Onesimus to run away in the first place was so that he might come to Christ later on and be presented back to you not only as a slave in the flesh, but as a slave in the Lord. What a beautiful picture. What a wonderful example and illustration of God's gracious providence. Could it have been, yes, that God in his providence allows the runaway slave to go and find his place in Rome, and then is found by the authorities and brought back and killed? Yes, yes. Could it have been that in God's providence he allowed the runaway slave to return to be beaten and for his family to be beaten as well? Yes. But as Paul says, perhaps. Perhaps in God's great providence he was separated you from you for a while. Not so that he might be killed or beaten, but that he might be returned to you forever. What a beautiful picture. So that you and he might be reconciled. Oh, I can't help but seeing the parallels here between Philemon and Onesimus and Joseph and his brothers. You remember in Genesis chapter 45 where the Scripture talks about the brothers who had sold Joseph into slavery, who had treated him so unkindly, who had left him for dead, who were so ill toward him, wanted to make him pay, wanted to kill him because they despised every righteousness that was in him. That was, the, that was the attitude toward Joseph. And as you travel from Genesis 39 to 50, you find out over and over and over again that Joseph trusted God, trusted God, trusted God. He watched the unfolding of God's sovereignty. He watched God's providence move and shape his life to the point where at the end of the account, in verse 45, chapter 45, verse 1, it says, 
Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried, Have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. This was the first time in years and years and years and years after the complete and total sinfulness of his brothers that Joseph, as the second man in charge, the prime minister of Egypt, had every right and had every reason to see his brothers condemned to death because of their murderous acts. Instead, chose the greater reason. He looked through their murderous acts to what God was doing and he saw the unfolding of God's providence. He said, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. And it says he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, Please come closer to me. They were incredulous. They couldn't believe that he was Joseph, their brother. They thought he was dead. And they came closer and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Wouldn't they have been pierced to the heart? Wouldn't they have assumed that this brother, having been dead, was now very much alive and his vengeance was going to be active toward them? But notice, he says to them, Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves. Now that, my friends, is a trust in a sovereign God. Don't be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Oh, that's such a trust. Such a confidence. He looked through his adversity and he looked to a God of providence. Over and over again in this portion of God's Word, it says, and Joseph trusted, and Joseph became a trusted man because he trusted the Lord. He didn't, he didn't wallow in his own self-pity, in his own pain, in his own agony. That's the psychological spirit of our age. That's not Joseph. He said, no, even though I've been sinned against grievously, even though I've been harmed repeatedly and left for dead, God has seen fit to preserve me so that I would preserve the brothers that I love. And of course, you know the wonderful statement in Genesis chapter 50 that really caps off all of this. Verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? I mean, they knew the time. They knew the seasons. They knew that those who were in charge were often very angry and very vengeful, and very wrathful? What if Joseph turns full circle and this appearance of love is not really there? He's just sort of manipulating us to the point where he has us right where he wants us and then he's going to lower the boom. So here's what we'll do. We'll send a message to Joseph saying, Your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. You say, well, that was more manipulation. They shouldn't have been forgiven. Well, Joseph didn't know it. He couldn't look into their hearts. He didn't know their motives. For all he knew, there was a message from their father. For all he knew, he was doing the right thing. And besides, God will take care of all of that. God knows that. 
And what does it say? For about the eighth time in this account of Joseph, from 39 to 50 of Genesis, it says, And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came. And because they saw the way that he responded to them, it says that they came and they fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. You see, they repented. They realized, we're so wicked. We thought you were going to bring the hammer down. We thought you were going to bury the hatchet right in our backs. We thought that you were going to be vengeful and wrathful, and instead, Joseph wept. You can almost hear Joseph saying, I love you, I love you. I would never do anything to harm you. I don't care what you did to me. Joseph said to them, don't be afraid, for am I in God's place? In other words, am I in the, the judge of the world? Am I, of the, am I the avenger of every wrong act? Am I the one who's going to exact vengeance upon those who sin against me? No. No. I'm not in God's place. As for you, the truth is you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. You see, there was a famine. And God in His providence knew that these brothers were to be protected because who were these brothers? Ultimately, the lineage of the twelve tribes of Israel. Oh, God had a plan. And the plan even included the sin of the brothers against Joseph and Joseph's forgiveness of his brothers. He says, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Oh, that's the heart of forgiveness. That is the heart of forgiveness. Do you thank God for His providence? Especially when you're called upon to forgive? Do you eagerly anticipate to see what God is going to do once that person is released from their sin and their guilt? To see them prosper? To see them come to a maturity that maybe they would have not otherwise known because you have done the right thing? Do you desire to love and forgive others from a pure heart, a heart of love with no compulsion, no manipulation? Do you forgive others because you want to be used by God in ministry to an optimum degree, free and unhindered? Well, if you do, you've understood the real reasons to forgive. And I believe that Philemon understood that very picture. And we'll find out what happens next time. Let's pray together. Our Father, we have understood from this small account the reasons to forgive. There are so many more that Your Word gives, but at least these from this text challenge our hearts to forgive as we should. We don't express this heart as often as we must. May we forgive because You've forgiven us. May we seek the good of others because You have sought for our good. May we love others from a free heart and not by way of manipulation or compulsion. May we have a full and complete ministry because we've worked toward righting all relationships as much as we could. And might we watch the unfolding of your wonderful providence 
as we seek to do the right thing. Father, we don't know what happened to this runaway slave Onesimus or Philemon, but we do know that this text teaches us so much about forgiveness. May we grow in it and learn from it. In Christ's name, amen.